You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 61. Let's just jump straight in and see where we go. It says, For the choir director, on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David, Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy, and let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Selah. So we begin here, as we have often seen now with David, and he is in a position again where he is simply crying out to God. Now you might notice again how much David does this, and it always kind of For me, I think if David needs to do this, how much more do we need to do this? Cry out to God for various different things. And again, the pattern that we see, like so many of these psalms, is that he begins in tears and he ends with praise. And this is a pattern that many believers will know. Gone down upon their knees with broken hearts and heavy hearts, and they rise from their knees with praise on their lips. This is what being in the presence of the Lord can do. But notice verse 2, he says, From the end of the earth. I call to you. Now, we're not sure of David's actual location during this psalm. Maybe he was away from home in battle. Maybe he was out and about somewhere. We don't know. Uh, The point really to take away is that he seems to be in a place where he's feeling lost, or you could say spiritually away from home. But you notice he says, my heart is faint. So he's not in a great place. He's obviously in that place of desperation, again, that we see so often with David. And I think we can take a lesson from this because you know, we, we all get those times, don't we, when we're, you know, home feels like a distant memory. I'm speaking about home metaphorically in that sense. But for David, it was obviously he was out, you know, he was away from home, his heart was heavy. He really forgot probably what the, the tabernacle worship was like, what the assembly of the saints was like, what the presence of God is like, what the face of Jesus, those sweet times, can be like. And that's often the time, isn't it, when we have that as a distant memory that we wander over to the other field we say what's going on over here and our eyes start to wander it's the distant memory with that distant heart as well we need to be careful in times like that now I had a friend a while a long time ago now but I I witnessed to him over a long period of time he was a friend a school friend and we kept in contact for quite a period of time he had a Christian parent. His mum was a Christian. She, she still, still is, as far as I know. And at one point in his life, he would have probably claimed he was a Christian too. Anyway, after a while of witnessing to him, he just simply said to me, look, I tried it and it didn't work. I still remember that statement because it it's a very interesting way of thinking about it. And it's quite a revealing statement. You see, because for, on the one hand, it exposes the fact that he more than likely had tried religion, and in his context, this was the trappings of Christianity that he was familiar with, but he had tried that, and it had not worked for him. And when you hear someone speaking like that of Christianity, you can be fairly sure, not definite, but it's a good indicator that they were never actually truly saved. They were just within the confines and trappings of a Christian experience. Because when you are a blood-bought, adopted son of God, the experience that you have is not one that you say, it's not something you try on in that sense. That's why I found that language so revealing. 
And it can be a danger if, you're, if you've grown up in Christian surroundings and you've been involved in Christian families or work for your life that you can just go along with the motions and you never actually have that desperate cry, that longing for God in your own heart. You know, we've all probably known and grown up, if you've been through youth groups, you've probably seen that phenomenon quite a few times. But I think this also reveals this, this sort of a statement could be repeated many times today. It reveals a paradigm shift in the way that the generations have changed over the years. So with the Gen X, the millennial age groups, and my generation, the generation above, the questions were very different. If you, if you do a Christian apologetics, the questions were more things like, is this true? You know, you're telling me about this Christianity and this Christ. Is this actually true? I need to know it's true before I can uh, figure out whether I'm even going to give you a hearing. And look, here's a Bible contradiction. Show me how to look at this contradiction. Show me whether the Bible is true. They were the questions that we were getting uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But now, with, with what they call Gen Z, the questions have changed. The whole concept, the whole way people look at this question has changed. It's no longer, is it true, as the first question. The first question is usually, does it work? Does it meet my needs? Does it satisfy my emotional experiences that I crave? And that, again, I'm not saying that's actually a wrong question in some respects, but it's just the order I'm saying has been flipped. Whereas before, it was the rational questions and the truth questions first, and then meeting the, the existential needs. Whereas now, there's been a cultural shift, and it's actually the existential questions first, and then the truth questions come later. And that's a challenge, particularly for those in Christian ministry, or in just generally if you're witnessing to different people, you see, because the challenge is now on us to present the gospel in a way that is both existentially relevant, and then when I say that, I mean that meets the emotional needs of the soul and the existence that we have, you can put it like that, but it must also be what we say is empirically adequate. That means it must be both for the heart and for the mind at the same time. You must present them both with a gospel ministry. So the danger... And particularly if you've grown up maybe in, a, in an environment that's been very pro-Bible. And you know me, I'm very pro-Bible. But you, there's a danger that you fall into the trap of just presenting Christianity as just simply a body of truth. Like one long propositional statement after another that people must affirm. And don't get me wrong, there are many propositional statements in the Christian faith that do need to be affirmed. But if you simply present it like that, that won't appeal to the whole, the whole of the whole being. So often, in a rationalistic mind, that's what some, you know, that's dealing with the, gen the questions that were asked a generation ago. Now we want to make sure that we actually present the gospel in all of its fullness. We present it in a way that meets all the needs of man, both head and heart. We want to present it really as a personal, embodied reality. That's the way I'm, I'm phrasing it there. And in that way, it can relate to both us in an intimate way and in a way that meets the truth claims of Christianity. Now, you won't find that just by reading confessions and creeds, as good as confessions and creeds are. The place you'll find that is actually in the incarnation. If you think about what that actually means, what do you read? The word became flesh. The word is a word for logos. It's, it can actually literally be translated as mind. So it's the mind, the word of God became flesh. He was incarnationally revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And in that person, what does it say in Hebrews? It says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are also tempted. And one of the times we get tempted is like David when we're in that far distant land 
and our hearts are heavy. So I feel it's very important in this day and age to offer a message that speaks holistically. And again, that, that, using that term, that's a word that basically means that you present the message as all in, interconnected. Like every part of the Christian faith, the gospel, Christian ethics, all these different things are all connected intimately and you cannot really have one without the other. Because we like to just focus on one part, we focus on getting someone saved, we focus on this, we focus on that. But the gospel, like we talked about, It speaks to all of our being, head, heart, emotion, soul, living, everything. That's the gospel message. And David here, he appeals to God in this intimate way. You can tell just from the language he uses in his prayer. And he has no problem expressing his deep emotions. Like he says, you know, my heart is heavy. I'm a long way from home. Even if it doesn't matter how far I am from home, I know that I can still call on you. And this is also what he does. He gives us that example. No matter if I'm at the ends of the earth, To you, O Lord, I call. And then look at this little beautiful expression that we have. I love this. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I am. And we've had that term rock a lot in the Psalms already. We'll see it a lot more. But this is the first time he adds this little caveat onto it. The rock that is higher than I am. And I just love that expression. This is a rock that is higher than me, far above all my ways, all my thoughts, all my troubles. Makes me think of like those photos you see of like a, a plateau Above the clouds, you know, you get those weird cliff formations where someone's usually built a monastery or something, and it's just far above everything and miles away. It gives me that thought. He doesn't cry out for anything specific in this time. He hasn't got some solution in his head that he thinks is going to solve all his problems. He hasn't concocted anything in his heart that he thinks is going to be the way out of this. He just simply says, he cries out and he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I am. His ways are higher than ours. Now let's talk a little bit about this term rock. We've touched on it briefly as we've gone over the Psalms. You find it at least 20 times within the book of Psalms. And the metaphor is very clear. A rock is something that is solid. If you stand on it, it's a solid foundation. And to be honest, most of the time, that is what people assume is being conveyed by this term, the rock. It's just a metaphor that conveys those things. We're in the book of Psalms. It's good poetic language. And that is absolutely true. However, there is much more to this term the rock. And I want to just look at that for a little bit with you now. We need to understand the biblical origin and the way that this term is used within the Bible and the way that it is developed throughout the Bible and into Jewish tradition, in fact. If you remember during the wilderness years, so jump back to the book of Exodus, when the Israelites were in the desert and they were thirsty and they didn't have water and they were grumbling at Moses, and then Moses was told to tap the rock, and the rock gave life-giving water to the Israelites. Let me just read to you from Exodus 17. It says, But the people thirsted there for water. They grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they'll stone me. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. It's one of the first times we get Moses speaking about this rock motif. A little while later, you remember, when Moses was interceding for the people again, and he's up on the mountain, he says, Lord, show me your glory. And the, and the Lord says to him, you can't see that. Come, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and my glory will pass by. And Moses does that, and it's an amazing piece of scripture. So that's a, this, with all these sort of backgrounds going on, Moses is the first one to make the rock 
analogy, figurative in that sense of connection with God. He says in Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. So he personalizes the rock there as a name for God. Do you remember that, that beautiful Jewess Hannah when she said she's in the temple and she's going through that a very uh, emotional scene and she says, there is uh, none holy as Jehovah for there is none besides thee, neither is there any rock like our God in the book of 1 Samuel. So the rock here is seen not only as the source of the physical blessings that brought the Israelites, it's also the source of the very living water that actually kept them alive in times of need. Now this was a theme that was very prominent in the Jewish mind, and you'll find the rock throughout the whole Bible. And you also find the rock in extra Jewish literature. I'm going to read to you just one uh, portion here. This is from a book called the Tosefta. Uh, I won't give you all the, all the, the tractate names and things like that, but I'm showing you the tradition that developed in what they would call the Jewish oral law surrounding this rock that we just read about in the book of Exodus. So it says this. Again, this is not from the Bible. This is from a, a Jewish commentary or oral law. It says, And so the well, as in the well of water, which was with the Israelites in the wilderness, was a rock, the size of a large round vessel, surging and gurgling upward, as from the mouth of this little flask, rising with them up onto the mountains and going down with them into the valleys. Wherever the Israelites would encamp, it made camp with them on a high place opposite the tent of meeting. I could give you quite a few statements from Jewish literature like that. And this was the tradition they had. Now, whether we're talking about the actual rock following them around, that's not the point. What Paul, I'm going to read you a New Testament passage right now. Paul knows, he, he's a Jew, trained under Gamaliel. You know, we know his background. He was very familiar with this tradition in Jewish teaching. And when he's actually trying to make a, actually doing a teaching about the deity of Jesus Christ, to be frank, he uses this rock analogy. And he uses this piece of Jewish tradition that talked about the rock following the Israelites around the desert. And this is why I find it so fascinating, because you think about what this rock did. What did it do? It was the rock that gave living water and kept them alive during their time in the, in the wilderness. And that's obviously, you don't, I hope I don't have to make the analogy to you of Christ who gives us living water. So listen to the words of the Apostle Paul when he makes a, a New Testament analogy using this teaching, not from the Bible, from Jewish tradition. He says, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 3. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate from the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now remember, speaking to a Jewish audience here, within that culture, they would have known exactly what rock he was talking about, and ultimately they would have had this whole tradition of the rock being Yahweh, basically. So when he comes and he suddenly says that rock was in fact the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that's actually a very strong, within the, the religious context of that world, it's a very strong statement that Christ is God. Because think of what Hannah prayed, there's no one like our God, our rock. Uh, Moses said that statement too. Now Paul is saying, that's Jesus, the rock you're talking about, Yahweh that you're referring to in the Old Testament. He places all of that imagery, all of those motifs, straight onto Jesus Christ, who is our rock. And then in the psalm here, back to David's words, David says he's higher. He says he's higher than I. It's a rock that's higher than I. He's higher because of his divine origin, higher because of his perfect obedience, higher because of his supreme sufferings, higher because of his ascension, ultimately to the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to what Spurgeon said on this one verse. 
He says, all thou hast enjoyed of Christ is but the beginning of a topless mountain. Christ comes and whispers to you, look, yonder, far above those clouds, you have only begun to go up. This hill of communion is only one step. As yet you have only taken a child's leap, you have farther to go, far higher than you can imagine or conceive. Ah, this is indeed a rock higher than thou art, the highest in communion and next to the throne of God. And he's making the analogy there. You remember the verse in Ephesians that says it which brought uh, Christ from the dead when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above all rule or authority and power uh, and every name that is named, uh, not in this age, but also in the age to come. That's Christ. He's talking about this rock is, is Christ. Do you remember the song, the great hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me? Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the riverside which flowed be of Sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Augustus, top lady, I believe, wrote that hymn. It's an amazing hymn, but again, he's playing on the rock. Christ is the rock motif, and he relates it back to Moses' experience, hiding in the cleft of the rock. Now let me delve a little deeper into this theme. Because there was something that struck me as I was reading Deuteronomy, which was the song of Moses, so the, the victory song of Moses. And I noticed this statement, listen to this. They're singing about their enemies. And they say, indeed, their rock, their rock, and they spell it with a small r, is not like our rock, with a capital R. Even our enemies themselves judge this. So what they're basically saying is that the world has its rocks. The world has its objects of affection, its objects of worship. It has the things that it trusts in, the things that its people stand upon. The world has many of these and it's very easy, and we must fight the, te- the, the temptation to be confused, to think that those rocks are in any way comparable to the rock upon which we stand. Because ultimately, the rocks of the world are hopeless. Let me illustrate that to you in two, uh, in two ways. One using Greek mythology, another using 20th century philosophy. Greek mythology, if you've ever studied it, is fascinating. Some of the stories, many people are familiar with, like Jason and the Argonauts and Medusa and these ones that we've seen in programs, particularly at Christmas time, they they always seem to be on TV. And it does help you in many ways understand a lot of the the Greco-Roman world to which we read about in the New Testament. That's why I like getting into these things. There was one Greek myth, the myth of Sisyphus. Ever heard of him? He was a Greek king of Corinth. And he did, basically, he he angered the gods. This was how the the myth is taught. And he was punished. He was sent to Hades. And because of his zest for life, they thought that the best punishment for this man would be to give him basically a hopeless... Basically, what he had to do is he'd start at the bottom of a mountain and he'd have to push a massive rock up to the top of the mountain. When he got to the top, the rock would fall to the bottom. He had to go back down, do it again, and he was consigned to do this for all eternity in Hades. That was the punishment that they had with him. And because of how popular this was in Greek mythology, the whole concept of Sisyphus's rock kind of ended up being representative of the absurd dilemma that man finds himself in in a world without uh, God. Basically, it said that mankind long, longs to have a reason and a purpose for their life, but the world refuses to give people that reason and purpose. So ultimately, they're just condemned to pushing the rock up, seeing it fall down, pushing the rock up, and seeing it fall down. That's Greek mythology. Now let's jump to 1942, a philosopher by the name of Albert Camus. He's a French existentialist. These are the very woe-is-me type nihilistic philosophers he was very popular. He wrote a very famous essay, which was really the, one of the things that he was most well known for, called The Myth of Sisyphus. And he used this Greek myth about the rock being pushed up. And what 
his argument was basically that he saw Sisyphus as this sort of absurd hero which represents all of us in this life because there is no hope. And he said any attempt to deny the fact that Sisyphus' situation is the same of all of ours is just living in a fantasy world. The one requirement that this philosopher uh, wanted everyone to accept was that we need to accept that man is full of the awareness, be aware of the absurdity of our life. There is absolutely no meaning or purpose to life. And his whole argument was, paradoxically, when you accept that, you would become happy. So he had this argument that he said, oh, look at Sisyphus pushing the rock up. He's toiling in its struggle. But then the rock falls down, and for that brief moment where he walks down the hill, you could imagine him smiling. That was his argument. The central point of his whole essay was that life itself is a futile struggle devoid of hope. And the only way to bring any semblance of meaning is to accept that fate and move on, basically. (laughs) And he says, the only way that that's not going to be fulfilling for you is if you have some sort of fairy tale idea of something better. So you could see why uh, any concept of religious hope was just a complete anathema to these philosophers, because that would be a hope more than they could have. And this is not, you know, this was very, very popular. Many, this infiltrated our whole philosophical academy, trickled down into the universities, and then usually when something's in the universities, they say in about 10 years it's going to be in the culture. And that's generally how it goes. And having looked at trends, I'd say that's pretty much exactly what happens. And this is how it goes. Now, you might think that sounds ridiculous. Why would anyone believe that? But that, that is ultimately the rock of the world. That is where, where it is. Yes, there's, there's obviously all the common graces and enjoyments that you can have uh, in the world with things that we're blessed with. But ultimately, that search for meaning can only be given to you by yourself. There's no external meaning. And this is why it stands in such utter contradiction to a God that says, hope in me, I am the rock, to Jesus Christ who says, he is my literal hope. And this is why David, I believe, says, the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than than I. This is not a meaningless, purposeless person. This is Yahweh, the creator, the one who has infused us with this meaning. And then notice, look how he does it in the rest of these verses. For sort of the next four verses, he piles on the metaphors. So he's done the rock that is higher than I. Then he says the refuge, the tower of strength, the dwelling place, the shelter. And he just builds up this picture, this imagery of God as a place where he can go when he's in a time of distress, when his heart is faint. Let's look at verse 5. For you have heard my vows, O God. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth so that they may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. So here he expresses God's faithfulness knowing he will answer. And what he's referring to back here is that Davidic covenant. Do you remember David was the recipient of that promise, that promised an eternal throne, an eternal crown, and an eternal king to rule upon that throne? And we, this is why we call the Messiah the son of David, the, you know, the true Davidic king, ultimately. And that is fulfilled in him because he is an eternal uh, being after his resurrection in that sense. He will abide forever. The messianic king will abide forever. And he says when he thinks upon this, he sings praise. So I will sing your praise and your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. He sings for praise and he commits to fulfill his vows to God. This is what crying out to a rock that is higher than us can do in our lives. 
Now, what we're going to do is going to read, go straight into Psalm 62. I'm pretty much going to read the whole thing for you with very, very little comment because I consider Psalm 63, uh, 62 rather, to be the transition to Psalm 63, and you'll see why, hopefully. So let's just read it, verses 1 and 2. My soul waits in silence for God only. For him is my salvation. He only is, the rock, is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. So you can see the same themes coming up there. If Psalm 61 was, was David crying out to God, Psalm 62 here now is David waiting on God. And then in Psalm 63, we're going to see him satisfied in God. Now let's do verse uh, 3. How long will you assail a man? that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. And you notice in that language there, it's very similar to David saying, from the ends of the earth, when my heart is faint, I'm going to pour it out to you, I'm going to cry out to you, and you'll be that rock, that stronghold, that safe, that refuge. All of those metaphors coming up in this psalm again. Verse 9, men of low degree are only vanity and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression. Do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. The power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord. For you recompense a man according to his work. Let's move straight into Psalm 63. Because we have, in the end, the crying, the waiting. Psalm 63, I believe, is the answer to this, the satisfaction found in God alone. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judea. It's only 11 verses, this psalm, so I'll read the whole thing and then I'll do what I want to say after that. He says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power, your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied with the marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. And when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. This is Psalm 11. So he starts with, O God, my God. So he personalizes this very immediately. He, he is my God in the sense he is mine by covenant, according to David. He is mine by promises, mine by innumerable blessings, and mine by answered prayer, mine by consent of the heart, mine by daily acts of faith, and mine by devotion and holy will. We see here the true satisfaction of the human soul, and David likens it to a thirst, a yearning in his body. You may have experienced that sort of yearning in your life. 
for God or for meaning in some uh, existential sense. It's very common. Listen to how Oswald Chambers phrases this. He says, The man or woman who does not know God demands an infinite satisfaction from other human beings which they cannot give. And in the case of the man, he becomes tyrannical and cruel. It springs from this one thing. The human heart must have satisfaction, but there is only one being who can satisfy the last abyss of the human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about speaking to the soul of man here. This is the part of us that reflects the image of God, that spiritual part of our being, we could say. The Puritan Thomas Gattaca said it, the soul of man bears the image of God, so nothing can satisfy it but he whose image it bears. And it makes sense. This is the unsatisfied desire that C.S. Lewis spoke of. Do you remember his famous quote? If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. This is the God-shaped vacuum of Blaise Pascal. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. This is the restless heart of Augustine. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, this is just a constant theme of both religious and non-religious writers over history. There is this longing and there is only one thing that can fill it, I believe, something that meets the existential reality and the truth claims to be actually uh, verifiable in this world. And that is the creator, the one whose image we are made in and the one who is very much upon our soul. Look at the things that our soul hungers for. We see, this is, remember, this is David's psalm. He's satisfied in God. And we're going to see these themes now. First one, the greatest hunger of the soul is actually God himself. The thirsty soul longs for God. David uses that. It's like a dry land parched for water. If you've ever seen dry, you know, in summer when the mud's dry, it starts to crack and break apart and parts of it just fall, fall off. And you can kind of get that imagery here. Do you remember Jesus' words in John 7? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he goes on, doesn't he? He says, if anyone drinks of the water that the world's giving you, it's, a very, it's basically the same way of saying if you're relying on one of the rocks of the world for your satisfaction, you'll end up being unsatisfied. But if you come and drink the water that I'm giving you, it says you will never thirst again. This is what Jesus offers us. This is the last summons that we find on the pages of Scripture. Do you remember? Revelation 22, almost the very last verse of the Bible. The last thing that the Apostle John was inspired to write to mankind. It says, the Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. That's the water of life flowing from the rock, just like Moses pictured all those years ago. That's the greatest hunger for the soul, God. The greatest faith of the soul. Verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. The loving kindness of God. This is not some uh, judge in the sky, some ogre that we've imagined from our own hearts. It's not some lovey-dovey God who doesn't care about us, doesn't care about justice. It's a God who is abundant in loving kindness and mercy. Loving kindness is indeed better than life. It is independent. It is the cause of life, the redemption of life. And it is loving kindness that supplies all our wants, gratifies all our desires and develops in us the powers of life itself. We must know that loving kindness. That is another word to mean the covenant loyalty of God, the character of our God that is faithful, who will not break his word, who will do and accomplish what he has promised to do, which ultimately is for us to be his bride. 
He displayed that love for us, didn't he? Where did he display that love? For my God, for my love is demonstrated on the cross, it says in Romans, doesn't it? Etched forever into the fabric of history. In fact, the cross of Christ, if you know, is one of the most authenticated events uh, in history generally, just by the amount of uh, testimony we have to it. The love of God is a very authenticated event for us. Verse 3 and 4, the greatest exercise of the soul. So we've had the strength of the soul, the hunger of the soul, the faith of the soul, the exercise of the soul, and that is praise. It says, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. Blessing and praise. This should not just be some service that we do when we are in church, but should be our very life. Spurgeon again said, praise is the rehearsal for our eternal song. I love the way he phrases that. Praise is our rehearsal for our eternal song. By grace we learn to sing, and in glory we continue to sing. What will some of you do when you get to heaven if you go on grumbling all the way? Do not hope to get to heaven in that style, but now begin to bless the name of the Lord. Verse 5, the greatest satisfaction of the soul. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness to see God in the sanctuary, to see his glory and power. And we see this, don't we, in the face of Christ Jesus. That is how we satisfy our soul. Yes, many people will search for that satisfaction in many different ways. It's a yearning that mankind has. We've seen both religious and non-religious, like I said, testify to that. It's full of the philosophy books are full of it. Religious books are full of it. It's a yearning that man has. Many people will seek to fill that with physical pleasure. Many people will have their own sort of escape from reality that they all try and have. I'm not saying that escaping is bad in one sense. I, I like to escape sometimes. We, we mean switch off, don't we, when we do that and just, and just relax. But I'm talking about a much more large worldview thing here. A man who has all the world, all that the world can offer, except that for which his soul was made, is ultimately still empty. Even in the midst of all his fullness, because his heart is not full for that, of that for which it has actually been constructed, the, the, the purpose for which it was brought into being, and that is for Christ. Now, there is a danger when we begin to see satisfaction in the wrong things. It's very easy, like I said. It's very easy to find yourself going down that road before you even know it. There's a danger for our own souls in that, and there's also a danger for our witness to Christ and our witness to the church. I read an article just this afternoon. It just came out in The Spectator. Now, this article is written by a non-Christian, and it's called The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. And it's making, it's an article about a recent large celebrity pastor that had some very public failings. Well, the the article names him, so I'll I'll just read some quotes from this, because it's an extremely challenging article. It's about a man called Carl Lentz. If you know him, you know him. He's a a big, uh, big pastor. So this man says, this is from The Spectator, which again, it's not a religious, that's not a religious publication, this is a secular publication. Carl Lentz's actions are a matter for his family and his faith. But there is an irony, though, in how whenever Christians seem to attach themselves to mainstream culture with all its vices or whatever, in the hope of drawing people towards God, they seem to get drawn towards vice themselves. This case also asks questions about the church itself. I have no doubt that Hillsong, under Lentz's leadership, enriched thousands of lives. Still, it seems to represent what I call the, with a twist of Christianity trend. He says, there is a mainstream culture 
celebrities, fashion, music, modish political activism and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. We can see this with a twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. Fulwell, there's a guy called Jerry Fulwell, again, another high-profile uh, American Christian leader who kind of ended wrongly. Uh, he, it says, Fulwell was a representative of the right-wing, business-orientated evangelical who offer capitalist self-enrichment and heuristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. Bear in mind, The Spectator, th these articles, they have this sort of slight tongue-in-cheek element to the way they're written, that The Spectator does that. He goes on, there are progressive Christians of whom Nedia Bowles-Weber is an extreme example. If you know her, you know her. If you don't, you don't. He says, who promote the usual left-wing causes, but this time with a twist of Christianity. And he, he goes through all these examples. I won't read them all. He ends by saying this, so if Christianity is just an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? And that's a question. I think that's a good question. And this is the last four lines. This is how he ends his article. He says, I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. And then this is his last line. Listen, this is what, how I came to this article. Someone had quoted this. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. And I think he's absolutely spot on there. And the answer to that is what David is expressing in this Psalm 63 here. He is giving us the way to a real, vibrant faith that is not and can never be considered to be just an add-on, something that we add on to the rest of our lives that is so tempting to have that sort of Christianity. But in fact, what he is here describing David in this Psalm is something that is the very epicenter of our faith, the thing from which everything else in our whole life must flow, the rock who is higher than I. This is what it means in the New Testament when it says, in him we live, we breathe, and we have our being. Everything, heart, mind, soul. This is what we give to Jesus Christ. And that is the only thing that will truly satisfy you. If we are looking like these pastors obviously were for satisfaction in different things, ultimately the tendency is that we will lose our witness, we will lose our own soul in the process because Christ is holy. Do you remember what we said about holiness a couple of Sundays ago? It means to be different, to be set apart. That's not in us. That has to come from Christ. We are only different in the sense of being holy because we, by his grace and privilege, are grafted into him as the head. And he is the one where everything flows because he is what? The rock. And what flows from the rock? The living water. And that is what we drink and we are given life. This is the whole analogy of the vine and the branches. We draw our meaning and our praise and everything that we have from him. And if we are not availing ourselves of that, these, that example, that article, gives a very good example of the things that can happen. Let's finish up. The greatest study of the soul. Verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. When the world falls quiet, night times like this, darkness covers the land, you slow, everything slows down from the busyness of the day, that is a great time uh, for your thoughts to go to the things of God. Actually, I find it frustrating sometimes because I want to go to sleep and then my mind starts going over. I'm usually going over like an argument or a theological article that I've read. I'm trying to make sense of it and then I kind of don't go to sleep and I end up <laughs> very awake. But you know what I mean. There's nothing so enriching though at, as actually chewing on those things, meditating, studying the word of God in that sense. 
It enlightens our eyes, it quickens the soul, it stirs our heart. All of our, our egotism, our vain desires that we think of and come from our own flesh, all of these things really pale into insignificance in front of the word of God. Yet, I also admit at the same time, it's sometimes very hard to get in that place. It's too easy to place other things in our mind. We all know that. It's a fast-moving world. Distractions come at us all the time. Let me read you just one more quote by a, a lady named Nancy, uh, Nancy DeMoss. She's another Bible teacher. She says this. I love this quote. Do you want to increase your hunger for the Lord? And she says, try weaning yourself off the world's diet, but be prepared for some withdrawal symptoms when you turn off the TV or the radio and eliminate unnecessary activities. And I like that she said that. Be prepared for some withdrawal symptoms. We all know what that refers to, withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. How many people watch The Social Dilemma? I saw so many people on my accounts do this. Got rid of all their social media accounts because of, like, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. But a month later, they're all back on. You know, the draw is just too strong. You know, it's like, that's the sort of, sort of thing I'm talking about. That's a withdrawal. That's almost like a withdrawal symptom. And a withdrawal symptom is something you get from addiction. So what she's saying here is that all these other things that have cluttered your life are, in effect, operating as something that is more valuable to you than the word of God. So she says, turn them off. Then she, she continues, then begin feeding on the word of God. The implication is you're going to have a real bad experience if you keep trying to do both and both. Then begin feeding on the word of God. At first, it may seem bland and boring compared to the lights and the razzmatazz of everything the world offers. But in time, you will discover that it satisfies in a far deeper, richer way than those things which you once thought were so fulfilling. David in this psalm gives us the tools to turn a wilderness experience, a time when you're far and distant from home, into what we would call a worship experience. And these are important because, let's be honest, the wilderness can be pretty large, pretty intimidating at a lot of times in our lives. He gives us seven specific things. I'm going to very quickly go through them with you, and then we'll be done. The first one comes from verse 1. This is how you turn a wilderness experience into a worship experience. The first one, you seek God. Simple as that. You seek God. You look for him. You're looking to see him in the everyday circumstances of life. You are open to hear from him, and you are searching for his voice. Number two, praise God. This is from verses 2 and 3. David looked to the sanctuary. It's interesting that God put his presence in a portable sanctuary right in the middle of the wilderness where his people were at that time. You see, he went to the wilderness to get them. They didn't have to come to Jerusalem first to find him or anything like that. This is a God that seeks and loves his people. So praise him. Seek God, praise God. And then number three, bless God. Verse four. He did this with his whole body and soul. And look at this. This is fascinating from this psalm. Look how many times and in what different ways he blesses God. He does it with his lips in verse 3. My lips shall praise you. He does it with his tongue in verse 4. Thus I will bless you while I live. He does it with his hands in verse 4. I will lift up my hands to your name. He does it with his will in verse 5. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness. He does it with his memory in verse 6, when I remember you on my bed. And he does it with his intellect, I meditate on you in the night watches. Bless God with all of our being, body, soul, and strength. And then the fourth point, he says, be satisfied with God. That's in verse 5. Remember in verse 1, he began with a thirsty soul and a downtrodden heart. Now we're back and he's got a satisfied soul, one that is drunk from the living water one that has had the fat, the marrow, 
And that's an unusual phrase. It's talking about the richest portion of the food, the fat and the marrow, the richest of food. That is how God satisfies. And then the fifth point, this comes from verse 6 and 7. Remember God. Remember him early, remember him late, remember him at all times. Think of what he has done, think of the times you've had with him, think of the future he has promised you. And then verse six, the sixth thing is cling to God. Cling to God, that comes from verse 8 in our psalm. And clinging to God is a lovely expression. Deuteronomy 13 verse 4, You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. It gives the picture, in fact, of a baby. If you've ever seen a mum carrying a baby, the way they just cling on, they're holding on for dear life, basically. Cling on to God for dear life is what it's saying. Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, but cling to what is good. God is what is good. And then seven, the final thing, rejoice in God. That comes from verse 11. Often the situation around us does not make us really want to rejoice. We all understand that. In those instances, we don't rejoice in circumstances. The one we rejoice in is actually God himself. And let me tell you, if you haven't been with God, you haven't spoken God, you don't actually, haven't progressed in your walk with God, you're going to find that much harder to do. That is one of the reasons we place uh, the importance on body life, on studying the Bible, these things you find all throughout because you need that satisfaction and that living water, that constant feeding from the vine in your Christian walk. Now, these are seven rules for life. Someone wrote a book called 12 Rules for Life. I don't know. Apparently, it's quite popular. But these are the seven rules for life that David, in fact, gave us here to turn a wilderness into a worship. Seek, bless, praise, satisfy, remember, cling, and rejoice in God. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.